As we come to God's word this morning, as we consider uh, Christ, the center of our Advent celebration, let us bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, indeed, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness of our sin, but you sent the light of the world into this world that we might be able to see him and know him, to trust him and to believe in him. And I pray that you would use your word this morning to strengthen that belief, strengthen that faith in our hearts this morning, that we might rejoice in all that Christ is for us. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, you know, too often the Christmas story is told so narrowly that it can often miss the broad scope of God's plans. We tell, you know, the central characters of the nativity story. You can make sure you get the shepherds and you get the wise men. You get Mary, Joseph, baby. You can maybe throw a donkey and a sheep in there. And we kind of got our story. But... That's often where the story begins and ends for most people telling of the Christmas story. And while there are many that may be able to recount those specific details, they often can't tell you much of the greater significance of why we're talking about some child being born and being laid in a manger. Sometimes, as we talk about the significance of Jesus coming to earth, we can talk as if the Bible begins in Matthew chapter 1 instead of Genesis chapter 1. In other words, we fail to take into account the Old Testament expectation that culminated in the Christmas story. This Advent season, we've been looking at how the Old Testament saints have longed for the Messiah. We are deepening our understanding of Christmas by understanding the prophecies and the expectation that converged in the birth of Christ. You see, the arrival of Jesus was the middle of the story, not the beginning. By neglecting these ancient prophecies, our understanding of Christ lacks depth. And conversely, by studying and further understanding these predictions of old, we can grow in our appreciation of our dear Savior. We learn what he was sent to do, what kind of person he would be, and what he will do in the future still. And so we get context for the larger story of redemption in which Jesus plays the central role. The Christmas story is not just about a baby born out of love that should make us simply go, oh, that's so nice. Truly, it's something far more deep, far more awesome in dealing with something far more terrible. It's a story about a holy God sending his only son to defeat the greatest enemy, sin, death, and the devil. To defeat it through this son's own sacrificial death upon a cross. He would show God's might and God's sovereignty by ultimately defeating the greatest foe. And so this story, the Christmas story, should not just be one of sentimentality, but one of worship for us. It should cause us to lay our hands upon our mouth in silent adoration and wonder that God would do such a thing. 
And in another sense, it should cause us to stand up and shout and burst out in joyful praise that our God has worked on our behalf. Hallelujah to his name. Now, so far in our study uh, these last few weeks, we've gone back to the beginning to Genesis to where the story began. Two weeks ago, we went to the first promise in the Bible of a coming Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there God promised to send a Savior who would deliver humanity from sin, death, and Satan. Then last week, we went to Genesis 49, where we saw that this Savior would be a king who would come from the tribe of Judah. Both of these have pointed us to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was born in Bethlehem on the first Noel and has ascended now to heaven, awaiting the time that he will return to vanquish his foes and set up his kingdom. These prophecies help us to identify the true and only Messiah. And now, last week I shared a story of one of my professors who was speaking with his Jewish professor and she knew that he was a Christian and he offered to be able to share what a, a Christian truly believed and why they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And he walked through the whole Old Testament showing how all of the Old Testament prophecies pointed to Christ. And he ended his presentation by saying that if Jesus is not the true Messiah, then there will never be a Messiah. The professor was a little stunned by this and and shocked, said, why would you say such a thing? And he said, well, because as you know, the genealogical records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There'd be, if someone showed up on the scene today and said that they were of the tribe of Judah, there would be, or, and of the family of David, there would be no genealogical records to prove such a thing. And yet when Jesus was born, those records still existed and were able to be there. The woman, the professor, then said, well, I certainly hope somebody kept those records. And my professor said, you know that they were not kept. She said, well, I hope they were kept because if the Messiah were to come, I would like to know who he was. To which he simply said, the Hebrew scriptures have described exactly everything that you need to identify who this Messiah was. And he has come and the New Testament has given revelation and testimony to that fact. And so the, test, the prophecies that we're looking at the last few weeks and we're looking at again today continue to describe and give shape and definition to who this Messiah is. That even us today can know that when the Jesus that arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago was indeed the one prophesied long before. This morning, we're turning to another prophecy in the Pentateuch, in the book of Numbers. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Numbers chapter 24. If you don't, uh, if you can find this on page 156 of the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a personal copy of God's Word, we'd love to put one in your hands today. And you can go to the Connect Corner. We'll be happy to send you home uh, with a Bible. Numbers 24, it's a book... Uh, Numbers as a book is not a book we turn to that often. However, it contains some of its own treasures that we neglect to our own detriment. The theme, just to remind you, uh, the theme of the book of Numbers is wilderness wanderings. This is the part of Israel's history in which Israel uh, wandered around in circles in the desert. The book can be broken down simply into three different sections. The first 10 chapters describe order of the Israelites. Chapters 11 through 25 describe disorder. 
and chapters 26 through 36 describe reorder. They, in chapters 1 through 10, they get preparations ready to leave Mount Sinai. They've been there since Exodus 19, a year previous, as they received the law from God up off of Mount Sinai. And then in chapter 11, as they set out, then we begin to see the problems emerge. They begin to complain and whine about what God has sent them, about the food and about everything else, and God sends a plague among them. Chapters 13 and 14, spies go into the land of Canaan to spy it out. They return, 10 of them give a bad report, and because the people listen to the 10 and not to the 2, they are punished and disciplined, and God sends them uh, into a judgment of 40 years of wandering the wilderness. God miraculously sustained them during that time. Their clothes didn't wear out. He provided food for them. But still, they were kept from entering the promised land until that whole first generation that exited Egypt in the Exodus had to die out. And so wandering, after 40 years, they finally land and get ready to enter the promised land. And, and they land on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, just across the Jordan River from Jericho in the, what's called the Plains of Moab. And I've got a little map that should show that if you can read the small print. Um, pl but Plains of Moab is there north of the Dead Sea, just above, uh, and you'll see the, the, the uh, label up there. The flat land is just to the right of the Jordan River that's flowing into the Dead Sea there. And they were there encamped, ready to enter the promised land. Of course, they won't do so until Joshua leads them in the book of Joshua. We're here in Numbers. There's still Deuteronomy that Moses needs to give to the people before they go. And Moses himself needs to die because he's not permitted to enter. And then they will go in under Joshua. But here they are camped after walking for 40 years. They are now able to settle and prepare to enter. And this is where we see, if we flip back to chapters, we're in Numbers 24, flip back to Numbers 22, and look in verse 1. It says, then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And so, here they are in the plains of Moab, just outside the promised land. Now, with the Israelites there on the plains of Moab, it their vast number prompts a response from the king of Moab, Balak. In fact, let's see this response here in Numbers 22, look in verse 2 through 6. It says, And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in, a great, in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So here we see Balak, the king of Moab, who is, in some senses, like a new pharaoh. 
You'll remember Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh saw that the people of Israel were many and it struck fear in his heart. Same too, another Gentile king, Balak, king of Moab, saw the great number of Israel and it struck fear in his heart as well. And just like Pharaoh, he sought to do a plan to thwart this people, to stop them in their tracks and to protect his own land and property. And his plan is to pay Balaam, a pagan wise man, a pagan seer, to curse Israel. And it's from this plan that we just read that was hatched in the mind of Balak that uh, begins uh, to cover the next few chapters of the book centered around the central character of Balaam. And therefore these chapters, chapters 22 through 25, are considered the Balaam narrative. Now you may or may not know much about Balaam. He's most often known for having a donkey that talked to him. And no, it's, he's not in Narnia. It's just how God chose in his circumstances to speak to him. And we'll look at that a little bit later. However, what fewer people remember are that there are a number of speeches that Balaam gives, some discourses that he speaks that are recorded here in the book of Numbers that are absolutely crucial for our understanding of biblical history and for the coming of the Messiah. He's hired, as we said, to curse Israel. But instead of cursing them, he opens his mouth and he blesses Israel. And as he blesses, there are glorious truths about Israel and her future that flow out. Numbers 23 and 24, where these speeches are recorded, is one of three poems in the storyline of the Pentateuch. Okay, so the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there are three key poems that are staggered throughout this corpus of literature. Last week, we looked at the first major poem of the Pentateuch, and it says, Jacob blesses his sons there in Genesis chapter 49. That's the first major poem. The second major, I could say, set of poems are here in Numbers chapters 23 and 24 in the Balaam oracles or discourses. The third major poem or set of poems in the Pentateuch is at the end of this set of books in Deuteronomy as Moses blesses the people of Israel. And the thing is, in each of these poems, the central figure, Jacob, Balaam, and Moses, calls an audience together and proclaims what will happen in the latter days. These are significant prophecies. As one author said, it's much like a Broadway musical where the story advances forward in the songs. And so it is true here as well. These poems give significant data and information about God's plan in the days to come. As we saw last week in Genesis 49, they speak of a king who will receive the obedience of the peoples and even transform nature itself so that it will grow with abundance, bringing it back to an Edenic state. In all of this, Moses, who wrote these first five books, is showing how the deliverer, the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 will come. He's showing how God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. His promises are not empty promises. His promises come with backing and he will make it happen. And the poems here in Numbers are no different. They too reveal details about the end of days and Israel's role in it as well as Yahweh's commitment to bless the offspring of Abraham. And so the point of this is simply to say that the structure and the skeleton of the Pentateuch is messianic. 
Friends, Jesus is not just hinted at or hidden within the Old Testament. The structure of the Old Testament points and drives towards the coming one who will deliver us from sin and Satan. And so Moses, who wrote these books, wants his readers, and that includes us today, to be looking for this Redeemer. And that's why Jesus could say, jumping ahead, when he stood before his people, the Jews at the time, he said this, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is all the revelation of the living God. Moses wrote of this Messiah. Now, before we look at the discourse or the blessings of Abraham, let's look at the narrative, the story that leads up to him opening his mouth and declaring these truths. Now, we last saw Balak, the king, in 22, as he's willing to go pay Balaam to curse Israel. And as the reader of the Pentateuch so far, if you were starting at Genesis 1 and you're reading chapter by chapter and you get all the way here to Genesis or Numbers 22, then you're going, I don't know if this is going to work, Balak. Because, you see, God, way back in Genesis, he promised to Abraham that if whoever uh, blesses Abraham, he will bless. But if you curse Abraham, then you're going to be cursed yourself. So, it's probably not going to be a good idea for you. But Balak thinks it's a good idea. And so, he sends a delegation to Balaam, who is 400 miles away, north, up in Pethor, uh, along the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia. Apparently, Balaam is widely recognized for his magic, for his soothsaying and his ability to, to see into the future, some sort of pagan prophet. And he's coveted here by Balak for his ability to see the supernatural. Now, at first, Balaam denies Balak's request because Yahweh told him not to in a, in a dream and then on a second attempt, Balaam receives some permission to go and begins the journey. And yet when he tries to go, he's opposed by the angel of the Lord who stands in his way in a narrow place between two fields where there's a wall on either side and the donkey can't get through because the angel of the Lord is standing before him with a sword drawn. Now the irony is that in this moment, as this donkey is suddenly like, whoa, there is an angel of the Lord, the sword drawn right in front of me, and I can't get around him. And yet Balaam does not see this angel. The irony is that this man has been hired because he supposedly can see the supernatural and speak about supernatural things. And yet here he is, unable to see what is right in front of him. And instead, who sees it? It's his donkey. It's his donkey that sees the angel of Yahweh clearly. Three times, the donkey stops to avoid this angel and his sword, and three times, Balaam strikes the donkey out of anger. And it's after this incident that Yahweh then miraculously opens the mouth of the donkey and to scold Balaam. He says, why, what have I done to you that you would hit me these three times? And after the donkey speaks, Yahweh opens the eyes of Balaam to actually be able to see the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. And as soon as Balaam sees that, he falls on his face, recognizing who it is that's directly in front of him. And Balaam says, do you want me to turn back? And the Lord says, the angel of the Lord says, go with the men, 
but only speak the word that I tell you. But only speak the word that I tell you in verse, chapter 22, verse 35. And so, it says, Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Now, for many, this story of a talking donkey is a curious, if not strange, account. In fact, many will criticize the scriptures for such uh, imaginative tales. Surely the Bible can't be true. It can't be accurate. It's got stories about talking donkeys. I mean, do you really want to believe in, in, in God's a revelation that describes talking donkeys? But of course we know God can do whatever he wants. And the, the miracle of creation is no more miraculous than this, the miracle of a do- talking donkey or the, the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus rising from the dead. The Bible is full of God doing amazing and wonderful things that we don't understand, but he uses for his purposes. Now, I believe that this is not just, oh, that's kind of funny. The donkey talked and we're supposed to move on. There's a a, a role that the talking donkey is to play that is going to set up for these poems and these speeches that Balaam's going to give. And so we can't miss the role of this donkey. Because as you come to this point in to hear from Balaam, the big question in your mind is, can I even trust this man? This guy is a, a, a pagan wise man that supposedly is going to speak something, should I even listen to his words? Does he really speak for God? Are the words coming out of his mouth God's words? And this is a difficult question because the remainder of the Bible reveals that Balaam was a wicked man. If you kind of read this narrative by itself, you might go, oh, this guy kind of seems like he wants to listen to God. But the remainder of the scriptures describe, like Numbers 31, verse 8, that he was put to death because of his wickedness. Or the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, says that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Jude 11 says that Balaam's error was that he abandoned himself for the sake of gain. He was a greedy man who was a false prophet. And later on he enticed counseled Balak to entice Israel into sin. And so in other words, Balaam was a wicked man. He wasn't uh, in the category of a true prophet. And yet here we are receiving some great words from him. Can we trust his word? The story of the donkey reveals to us that God will use whatever means he needs or desires in order to deliver his revelation. Normally, A donkey is not a reliable source for hearing the words of God. Not a reliable source for spiritual insight. And yet, in the case of Balaam, the donkey was the only one in that instance who could see things clearly. And God chose to use him. In the same way, normally a pagan prophet is not a reliable source for spiritual insight and revelation. But in this case, Yahweh used him. And the words he speaks come from Yahweh. He is the mouthpiece of God. And so therefore, when Balaam tries, uh, Balak rather, desires Balaam to curse Israel, Balaam ends up blessing her instead. And each time, Balak is like, the king is like, all right, Balaam, go ahead, curse him. And he stands back and watches. And then as he goes on, he's like, what? And by the end of it, his jaw's on the ground. He's like, comes over, he's like, Balaam, what are you doing? I asked you to curse him, and you blessed him. Okay, and then he goes, okay, let's go over here. 
And he tries three different times, different, three different locations, three different mountaintops. Okay, maybe you'll see Israel from over here and it'll be different. Okay, well, let's do a sacrifice. Okay, here we go. And then it, it happens again. And then he goes to another place. And he goes, and each time Balaam opens his mouth, he's blessing Israel instead of cursing him. Of course, we know God is the one that's behind this. Deuteronomy 23 verse 5 reveals that God was the one that made the blessing come out instead of the cursing. It says, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loved you. This was a great manifestation of the love of God towards his people. Now, the first two discourses in chapter 23 focus on Israel. They speak of Israel's special place among the nations and within God's plan. No other nation had a special relationship like Israel did. They had the help of Yahweh. No other nation had the promise of being blessed by God. Once again, this is an outworking of God's covenant to Abraham. His word is trustworthy. He is sovereign and able to make his word come to fruition, even when an enemy vigorously tries to oppose it, such as Balak, the king here. Now, as we turn to Numbers 24, and we are getting to Numbers 24, there are some textual clues right at the very beginning that indicate that something different is happening and that Balaam is taking a different approach from what even occurred in the first two oracles. Look at Numbers 24, verses 1 and 2. It says, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, three things that show that there's something different this round. First, is he did not use omens as he did before. That's his, uh, no. It makes note of that in verse 1. He didn't use omens. Secondly, verse 2, he sees Israel tribe by tribe, which is different than the previous two accounts in which it says he only saw a portion of Israel. He saw a little portion here, saw a portion here, but in this case, he sees Israel tribe by tribe. He sees the whole nation laid out. But thirdly, and most significantly, it says that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. Did you catch that? Verse 2, this reality of the Spirit of God coming upon him had not been noted previously. It is new here that I believe makes the oracles in, uh, the, in uh, Numbers 24 special, unique, and goes further than the previous ones had. Now I also want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, and then verses 15 and 16, in both of those, the word oracle is used six times between those four verses. The word oracle is used six times. That word that's translated oracle is used a total of 376 times in the Old Testament. A lot of times. But only eight are in the Pentateuch. Only eight are in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And of those eight, six are here in this chapter, those six that I pointed you to. 
And so the other, where are the other 368 that are outside the Pentateuch? They're all in Isaiah to Malachi in the prophetic section of scripture, which tells us that what we have here is on par with the great prophets of Israel. Now with our time remaining this morning, we're going to look more closely at what is revealed in these third and fourth oracles, the third and fourth discourses of Balaam. Because in them are revealed exquisite details about not only Israel, but Israel's future Messiah. And as we see, particularly three qualities of God's Messiah in these passages will be drawn to praise Christ the King, the one who fulfilled these expectations. Let's look firstly that the Messiah will be a king from Israel like Genesis 49.10 says. A king from Israel like Genesis 49.10. Now as we noted in Balaam's first two discourses, the emphasis is on Israel as a nation. But now in these discourses three and four, the emphasis shifts to an individual. No longer the plural, but now the singular. Namely, Israel's future king. Now if you look at verses five and six here of his third oracle or his third discourse, we see that he describes Israel's future prosperity. He says, verse 5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. This is imagery that sounds very familiar and similar to the Garden of Eden, described in Genesis 2. Even the flowing water in verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets, continues this garden imagery. And the mention of seed in the next line of verse 7, his seed shall be in many waters. All of this is talking about the, the fruitfulness and prosperity of Israel, their land and their families. They are planted in this land by Yahweh himself. And this, I believe, looks to a future day and the future prosperity when they will be planted in their land, when they will reap great abundance. But in the middle of verse 7, you see that we are introduced to a king from Israel. Look at it, verse 7. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. There's a king that is introduced here. And let's remember that this comes at a time when Israel is without a king. They are several million strong. They're there in the plains of Moab. They are led by Moses, but they don't have a king. Now, just about all English translations here follow the, the Masoretic text uh, of the Hebrew, which reads, his king shall be higher than Agag. Now, the only king that we know by this name is found in 1 Samuel 15, and he is the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites, we first found them in Exodus chapter 17. They were the, the first enemies to attack Israel. Israel's trying to exit Egypt. They're like, yay, we're free from Pharaoh. And then the Amalekites come and attack them. They're the first ones to attack them. And so there's a curse upon the Amalekites. And Saul, hundreds of years later, King Saul is supposed to bring the, uh, the judgment upon the Amalekites for what they did to Israel coming out of Egypt. But Saul, as we know in that infamous story, failed to do so. He kept King Agag alive. And so Samuel had to come up and clean up his mess. And so this verse here says that his king will be higher than Agag. Potentially saying that there's this future enemy of Israel. 
uh, a future Amalekite of sorts who will also oppose Israel in the future and the king of Israel, the Messiah, will be higher than even that pagan king. However, I tend to agree with scholars who see that there is a a textual variant here that rather than saying Agag, which honestly puzzles a lot of scholars, instead it reads that the king shall be higher than Gog. Now, if you've read the prophetic literature, you know that Gog is a name that comes up in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as an end end times uh, enemy of Israel. It also comes up in Revelation chapter 20. And so, I believe that this is a prophecy about Israel's end times king who will be exalted over the great and uh, uh, the great end time enemy of Israel, Gog. Whichever option you go, the point is the same. Israel's Messiah is higher than any other king, right? Now the fact of this king will be the Messiah is made more explicit in the next discourse. So we're looking in the third. Let's go to verse 17 in the fourth discourse and see clarity on who this king is, this king from Israel. Numbers 24 verse 17 says, I see him but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Here he sees a future king of Israel. But this king is distant chronologically. He says, I see him, but not now. He's not present currently at the time of this revelation. He is distant geographically. I behold him, but not near. Again, it's a future king. But now, we know it's a king because of the next couple lines. Look at it. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, up to this point in the Pentateuch, stars have been mentioned, number one, in Genesis 1, because the stars were created in the heavens, but then after that, stars are used exclusively to refer to the descendants of Abraham. You'll remember that in Genesis 15, Abraham's having trouble uh, trusting the promise of God, and God says, walk outside and look up to the heavens. And it says, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Stars in the Pentateuch represent the offspring of Abraham. And here it says a star of Jacob, thereby indicating that one star out of the constellation of Israel is what Balaam is speaking of here. But notice that the star is parallel to something else in this verse. A star shall come out of Jacob and a what shall rise out of Israel? A scepter. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that a scepter was key to the verse in Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Balaam is making a direct reference back to that prophecy in the last great poem of the Pentateuch. Jacob blessing his sons. He picks up that word, the scepter, and it says, it shall rise out of Israel. This will not just be any king. This will be king of the whole earth. And friends, as we looked at even last week, Jesus is the one who fulfills this prophecy. Who is the king who will rise out of Jacob? Who is the king who will rise out of Israel? It is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember, as we read this morning, when he was born, After he was born, the wise men from the east, known as the Magi, they came to Israel because they saw what? They saw a star. 
They came from the very same region that Balaam hailed from, Mesopotamia, in the east. And I believe that they had this prophecy from Numbers 24 that a star would come out of Jacob. And they, whatever they saw, however that star manifested itself, they believed this was connected to this king that would come out of Israel. And so they packed their bags and they headed to Israel. And do you remember what we read this morning, what they said when they arrived in the court of Herod? They said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men knew that a star rising was representing a king was being born. And they came to worship him. And indeed, as our brother Andy reminded us this morning, worship of this king is the only right response. These Gentile wise men came to bow before baby Jesus, and so we must too worship Christ our king. We owe our life and allegiance to Jesus, king of the Jews. Our savior is from Israel, is from Jacob. And even though we are not Jews ourselves, we benefit from the promises given to Abraham because we have been grafted in through faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is this Christmas, will you worship Christ who is king of the Jews, the king of Israel? Will you follow the example of the Magi and bow before him, confessing him to be your king and your ruler, the one who you owe all of your allegiance to? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Make it quick to bring worship to Christ for he is deserving of it. So we see first here in Numbers 24 that the Messiah would be a king from Israel like Genesis 49.10 prophesied. But secondly, we see that this Messiah would be a lion from Judah like Genesis 49 verse 9. Like Genesis 49 verse 9. Look with me at Numbers 24 verse 9. He says, he crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who cursed you. Friends, this is almost a ver verbatim quote from the passage we looked at last week. Once again, Balaam is bringing forward this verse in Isaiah, or sorry, Jer uh, Genesis rather, 49, that says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? In both passages, they're describing this Messiah as a lion that would come from Judah. It's a, a lion who is dominant and victorious. He goes and lies down after a kill and there is no one who dare rouse him or threaten him. He is the, the king. And once again, we see Balaam linking these messianic passages together. Just as Genesis 49 that we looked at last week speaks of this future Messiah, so too here in Numbers 24 looks forward to that day. He's picking up what was already given by Jacob and he's carrying it forward. Moses is linking this for us and for his readers. 
And then we see in, in that same verse that Balaam repeats the Abrahamic blessing, which is quoted in Genesis 27, 29. And this shows that the blessing of Abraham is going to be passed through the reign of the king from Judah. This great blessing to all the families of the earth is going to come through the one who reigns from Judah. Again, as we talked about, the irony is that the king of Moab, Balak, wants Balaam to curse Israel. And yet this verse here says that if you're trying to curse Israel, you're going to be cursed yourself, which means that Balak, who set out to curse Israel, is ultimately going to get a curse upon himself. What this shows is that God's promises will not be thwarted. Sinful mankind may want to stop everything to try to keep God's promises coming into fruition, but there's nothing that they can do. God's promises are invincible, friends. He is the Almighty One, as Balaam confesses twice in these verses, and he does as he pleases. No human kings, no human nations can go against his word. They may think that they are winning or succeeding against his people or against his plan, but ultimately he wins in the end. Now, as we noted last week, Jesus is indeed the, the one who's come from the tribe of Judah. Luke 3.33 identifies that. And in Revelation chapter 5.5, he's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. Indeed, he is the mighty lion to be feared. I'm reminded of the scene in, in the... C.S. Lewis is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy is hearing about Aslan for the first time. And he's discussing with the beavers about who this Aslan is. And of course, in Lewis's allegory, this Aslan represents Jesus, the true king. Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, this is true of Jesus, the Messiah. He is not safe. He is the king that will return with vengeance, but he is good. And he offers himself in salvation for all who believe now before he returns in vengeance. So we've seen that the Messiah is a king from Israel and a lion from Judah, both of which were first prophesied in Genesis 49, amazingly enough. But thirdly and finally this morning, we'll look at third characteristic of the Messiah given in these passages, and that is he is a victor over enemies like Genesis 3.15 prophesied. He is a victor over enemies like Genesis 3.15 prophesied. Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3.15. This was a prophecy given, a promise of hope after mankind had sinned. He promised that one born of a woman would defeat the enemy, the serpent, and by implication, he would make all things right again. And so God said, as he cursed the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, through the narrative of the Pentateuch, as we've outlined the last few weeks, Moses has shown how this enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent has played out. For there are those whom God has chosen and blessed, like Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. And then there are those who follow Satan and his wicked ways, seeking to attack or destroy God's chosen ones. And the narrative here, as we've seen, King Balak of Moab is the offspring of the serpent. And we see the enmity against God's people play out here. This is the enmity that was prophesied is playing out all through Israel's history. In this case, it's against Balak, king of Moab. But the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God was going to send one who would ultimately defeat those enemies and indeed the greatest enemy, who would crush the enemies, bruise the head of the serpent, still stands. And the prophecy of Balaam here in, in Numbers 24 reveals that the king of Israel, the one that he said has the scepter, the star that rises out of Jacob, he is the one who will be the one to accomplish the victory over God's enemies. Look in 24 verse 8. It says, God brings him, the king mentioned in verse 7, out of Egypt. And God is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Here, this king is seen to be the one who has God at his back. God is with him as the horns of a wild ox. And he goes and destroys his enemies. It says that he shall uh, devour them and he shall eat them up. He shall break their bones. He shall pierce them through or shatter them. This is ultimate destruction that this king will bring to his enemies. And this is further shown in verse 17. Let's jump back over there. Verse 17. Again, we talk about this star coming out of Jacob. This scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then it says this. Look at the last two lines of verse 17. It, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Ser also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And the one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This verse, verse 17, where it says that he will crush the forehead of Moab is a direct allusion back to the promise of Genesis 3.15 where there it says the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Here, through language not identical but similar, the king coming out of Israel will crush the forehead of Moab who at this time is the offspring of the serpent that is most attacking Israel right at this moment. This means that the future king of Israel will be the deliverer to rescue humanity from the clutches of Satan. Now, it's not clear exactly who Sheth is in the second half of, or the, uh, the last phrase of verse 17. Could mean either all of rebellious humanity. It could mean the nations, uh, the Canaanite peoples. But it's clear that it refers to an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of Israel. And he goes on in verse 18. Edom and Ser, which are synonyms of the same nation, and they represent this nation that opposed Israel. And so I believe this is to show that God's view here is not just to Moab, the current 
enemy. God's view is to all enemies of Israel, including Edom, who kind of stands in as a representation for all the enemies of Israel here, as is used at other places in the Old Testament. Messiah's dominion will not just be over Moab, it'll be over all of the enemies. He will exercise total dominion. Verse 19, the one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Total dominion. Friends, who is this future king who brings ultimate victory for humanity, who ultimately fulfills the promise of Genesis 3.15? It is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the victor, this verse describes. His conquering of his enemies comes, we know, in two phases. First, at his first coming. He triumphed over Satan and his evil demonic forces through the cross, Colossians 2.15 says. He did not eradicate them from the universe at that time, but he did render them powerless. He broke their power over humanity so that we no longer have to follow Satan. We never, no longer have to stand in fear of death. But the full crushing of his enemies, when he will ultimately crush the serpent and bring total dominion, happens when he returns. He will strike the earth. He will slay the wicked with the rod of his mouth, Isaiah eleven four says. He will bring God's wrath upon the ancient serpent and all of his followers. And in that day and at that time, he will have ultimate victory. Make no mistake, friends, but Jesus Christ will be the ultimate victor in the end. Jesus wins at the end of history. And we have promises such as this to remind us of that fact. He will establish his kingdom and the second Adam will reign successfully where the first Adam failed. And only Jesus fulfills these prophecies. And so friends, we see that the one that Balaam foresaw by revelation of the Spirit of God was none other than Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah and the King of Israel. Today, you and I, we stand between the two comings of Christ. And he calls all people during this time to turn to him in repentance, that we look to him in faith, that we would repent of our rebellion against him and confess him as the true Lord, the true King would recognize that eternal life is offered in his name, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only through Jesus do we have salvation. And so, as we see these truths that are given so long ago, thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene, and yet we see them fulfilled, and we know that they ultimately will be fulfilled, we praise Jesus Christ, the King of heaven. We rejoice in his name, the only name Christ alone that saves. Amen? Amen? Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this tremendous truth that we can praise the name of Christ who indeed is the rightful King of Israel, the rightful King of this earth, the second Adam who will reign where the first Adam failed, who will make all things right again, who will bring righteousness that will cause this earth to be like it was once before. Oh God, we long for you to come and dwell with us. We long for things to be made right between God and man and for this earth to be the saint, your sanctuary. We thank you for the promise that that will happen one day, but we 
are in this time where we are waiting for that time. And I pray, Lord, for all those who are here, if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, that have not trusted in him as their only Savior, oh, Father, that you would please open their eyes as you open the eyes of Balaam, that they might see the glory of Christ and recognize that there is no hope apart from him. Would you draw them to yourself out of your great mercy and love?